Welcome back to another Beach Cop Detectives interview with the writers, cast, and crew of Terriers. This time out, we're talking to Ted Griffin, executive producer and co-creator of the show. And if you don't know who that is, I can only assume you're here by mistake and thought this was an episode of Serial or The Black Tapes. In this interview, we talk about the origin of the show and its title, the development of many of the characters, specific questions on the first five episodes, and many other things. So sit back and enjoy this interview with Ted Griffin, co-creator and executive producer of Terriers. I meant to listen to the Tim Maneer interview that I saw came up today and just didn't get a chance, but I love the cartoon you have of him. Yeah, that's our artist, Nate Bliss. He's doing all our art for us, and uh, I have no doubt you will have one as well. All right, just realize I lost some weight since the Terriers premiere, so if you're going to take one of them, from, uh, <laughs> just tell him to shave off 10 pounds. <laughs> I will. I will do that. Uh, I know and, and he's doing all of them as if we'd been in a scrap, so, you know. I love it. That's perfect. <laughs> I am talking to Ted Griffin, co-creator of Terriers, and Ted, thank you for talking with me today. Uh, thank you for having me. It's a joy to be here, away from you on Skype. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not you're not the first person to tell me that. And not the last, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, my wife told me this morning, so. <laughs> so my first question, the obvious question for everyone is, what are your memories and thoughts on Terriers looking back? Wow, that's an easy question to answer. <laughs> I remember it as being the high point of my career to date creatively and also the most trying, difficult, exhausting, but gratifying experience in my life. It was, it was like I'd never done a whole season of television, and we were only doing – well, really 12 because it was the pilot and then a year off and then and then the other 12 episodes. So I don't know what it would be like doing 22, but it was the writing equivalent of crawling through a desert on your hands and knees trying to get to an oasis. But it was a blast. And at the at the time, I so wanted to be wanted it to be over with. But I look back at it more fondly than anything else I've done. So let's talk a little about the cast, which is to me, the main cast is Hank, Britt, Gretchen, Katie and Gustafson. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about sort of what order everybody was cast in if you remember that and how that affected the development of the characters i would say uh well donald was first and then um and then i think we cast mikey and then sort of cast both women accordingly and probably rocky at the at about the same time i would say for the pilot it doesn't change much we didn't have to make sort of too much adjustments but then watching the pilot and getting used to what these guys were like in those roles because when you write a part either you you, you certainly never have the actors you have. You never have them in mind, the ones that you're going to end up using. The only time actually I wrote anything, I wrote a role in Ocean's Eleven for Alan Arkin, and we actually cast him, and then he had to drop out about two weeks before we started filming. So that was uh, that's the closest I've ever gotten to that experience. Was that Carl Reiner's part, out of curiosity? Yeah. Okay. And I did see Alan Arkin do a table read uh, about two weeks before, and he was so awesome and so funny. Carl brought a completely different thing that was fantastic to it, but I wish we had taped the table read so I would have that Alan Arkin performance in my memory. So, but th uh, then what happens is when you watch these guys play the role, you start adjusting to that, and and sometimes it's unconscious. But I think then Hank started getting tailored more and more to Donal to how well, frankly he could portray sadness even with really funny lines and how little he needed to say with both guys it gave us the liberty of being demanding with their language meaning we knew we could throw them funny stuff and actually even sort of complicated lines to to get across because we knew they could they could handle it which was very liberating as opposed to the opposite where you have to write a lot of things monosyllabically because you know the actor will, will trip over their own tongue sure when you kind of recognize what your actor's talents are then that sort of shows you a path of oh we can do this that we never thought of before because we have Donald and Mikey or 
Laura, uh, Kim, or Rocky. So uh, what was your original question? What the hell am I talking about? Uh, I wanted to go back to something you mentioned, which is that Donald Logue, the way he can sort of sell that that sadness, I'd like to say, and it shows my notes every time I'm watching an episode, every time he's in a scene with Gretchen, you just see that heartbreak on his face. No matter what they're talking about, if they're joking around, it's just there. Oh, yeah. You know, you don't have to give him a line like that lets the audience know that he still loves her because you can see he still loves her. And that, that allows lots of scenes to play in subtext and allows you to avoid bad writing. I guess the other thing that I would say about casting Donal, because as you know, Butch and Sundance was on my mind when I was writing the pilot and you're never going to cast Newman and Redford. But so when we got Donal, I think there was one concern that people were going to sort of have Big Lebowski in mind because Donal is bearded. But what helped me or helped us was sure. that he kind of had a, uh, a Don Quixote vibe. There, he was a guy who was sort of fighting windmills, and then that led us on this path of Hank is the guy who sort of fights the unwinnable fight. And so that, I think, informed Hank's character post-pilot uh, was Donald's look and Donald's soul in that sense. And with, with Mikey as his uh, sort of Sancho Panza and the courier as their steed. You came in off of screenwriting movies, and Tim Minear had to say that you were very gracious about coming to him and saying, look, I'm here to learn. Uh, you know, I want to I want to learn what you guys do. What were some of the biggest differences in writing TV, writing for TV lessons that you learned in that writer's room? I would say I learned that first and foremost, TV gobbles up story at a voracious rate. If I at some point thought I had enough story for a movie that's two hours tv just sort of consumes it at a faster rate so there's so much more ideation that's necessary for tv because you got to have b stories and c stories and movies are allowed to slow down and take their time with things and tv except for hbo arguably still really doesn't i mean you, you kind of have to hold it's gotten better it's not no longer network television where they're something always constantly has to be said or going on so they don't switch the channel but it, it's just there's a you're shoveling a whole lot more coal into the engine on television than in movies so that was the first thing i learned second thing was kind of act breaks and getting a there's a different rhythm to television i probably made tim Minear suffer a whole lot more than he had to because I didn't know what I was doing at first. And he was very gracious and patient with me learning the ropes because I would look at things and sort of say, no, not that. And and I, I, <laughs> I was kind of trying to find the show, but that, which was probably exhausting to him. So the, the probably the first three or four episodes was the learning curve. And then the last three or four episodes was the endurance test. See if you can actually keep it going until the uh, until the end. But I, I, I do think there's some writers who are very good at keeping a pace of a movie going for two hours. And I think there are some TV writers when they do that, if they're so educated in, in television, that they, they sort of write for a good hour. And then I see some movies written by TV writers sort of begin to flail in the second half. And there's, a, I think, a reverse of that that's true, too, of film people who go into television. And it would be much easier to talk about if I could use examples, but that's sort of breaking the omerta law of Hollywood. I can't mention names or shows of, uh, that's, see, there's a movie writer trying to do TV, but he's going at a movie pace. <laughs> anyway, continuing on. So there's a lot of talk about the name. Can you tell me where the name Terriers came from? It came from originally listening to the song Hey Bulldog 
by the Beatles and thinking this is this would have been a great credit song for like a 70s cop show. It's just like it's just cool. And then I thought as I was working on the script, what if we just called the show Hey Bulldog? We probably can't get the rights to it. And so I just sort of threw that on as a title and which nobody liked. And we were in a meeting with FX and I just said, uh, all right, well, we'll just call it Terriers for now because they're kind of tenacious and scruffy. And and so it was really kind of a working title. And then we had a contest in the writer's room for anybody who came up with a, a better one. And there were a lot of titles that sounded like Tom Waits songs. Uh, we, <laughs> we were trying to be unusual. And basically, we just nothing ever cropped up that said, yes, that's it. And I would argue that nothing has since. Not that I will defend Terriers as a great title. But I will say that uh, I, I will say it was a not successful title. Gone with the Wind is a very successful title, but I hate that title. I think it's lousy, but it's be, uh, by the virtue of success, a great title. The one title I wish I would have changed of an episode is I wish I had called the final episode instead of calling it Hail Mary. I wish I had called it Not Going Home Anymore, uh, which is a title of a track of music from the uh, Butch and Sundance soundtrack, simply because that's sort of the truth of Hank and Britt at that point is whatever happens, they're not going home anymore. And at, at the end of the episode, they're not. Hank's sold his and Britt's taken a turn one way or the other. By the way, I was, I'm on record as defending the title as saying it's not, it makes sense to me. I totally understand where it comes from. And I don't think the title was as much of a problem. I think that just sometimes, you know, things don't always catch on, whether you want to blame marketing, whether you want to blame the audience not being ready for it. So I, I'll, I'll defend Terriers as a title. But Tim Minear mentioned that he wanted to call it Small Time Dicks. And I want to know if you remember any of the other alternate titles that were thrown around that you that you thought were fun, whether they fit or not, that were that were interesting. I just didn't want to say dicks that many times for the rest of my life. <laughs> that's that's reasonable. When we did small time dicks, and uh, <laughs> um, using the word small and dicks in such proximity just made me uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm trying to think if there's anything that was really. I think somebody said dirty deeds, but I think that's uh, who, who wrote who did that song? ACDC. Thank you. So the answer is the only other title I can remember is Hey Bulldog, which is even more confusing. I think somebody suggested we call it Jurassic Park, but then we realized that, that was taken. <laughs> yeah, you should go with Lost World because then you get that built-in marketing. And yes. Yeah, it would have made a lot of sense, but you might have drifted off people waiting for dinosaurs by the third or fourth episode. We got them for two then. <laughs> I think it, all the episodes were filmed before they aired. Is that correct? Correct. Okay, so – were they filmed in order? Because it seems like the characters and all that kind of thing really develops as, as time goes on. Oh, yeah. I don't think there was – I think the very last thing we shot on the last day was a makeup, uh, an additional scene for like episode six. But otherwise, there was almost nothing shot out of order. And I think episode six was just came in a little short, so we added a, a beat with Brett and Katie having sex. I have some specific character questions to run through with you. Yeah. I want to talk about Jamie Denbo's Maggie. Mm-hmm. Uh, both her origins as written and then when Jamie Dembo came in for the role. Well, she was written as pregnant, as very pregnant, and Jamie got the part – when Jamie got the part, she was pregnant. Uh, so <laughs> we, I, th- I think we padded her belly a little bit for the pilot, and then between the pilot and the show, as so often happens with pregnant women, they give birth. And so when we came back to the series, I think then she was completely artificially pregnant. I wish I could tell you what the inspiration for that character was. I guess it's it's because uh, I was trying to think of something unusual to do. I knew I needed a character whose function was to feed these guys cases. And 
I was trying to get away, I guess, from cliche in a mm-hmm. sense of who's a different a different type of person. Um, a lawyer is a little different. I think that may have come from Harper, where Harper gets his case in the movie from a lawyer. And then the way to get away from that was to make it a pregnant woman who's also very gimlet-eyed for a pregnant woman. In a similar vein, I wanted to ask about Lindis and how he came about and how the actor affected that character as well. Again, it was sort of tipping a hat to cliche and then trying to subvert it. I would say that Having, having the, the the rich man being a the possible bad guy is uh, is pretty much a, a trope of noir detective stories. Uh, another big influence on our show was this movie Cutter's Way from 1980. I'm going to say two with Jeff Bridges and John Hurd. In fact, the Santa Barbara portrayed in Cutter's Way was a, a big influence on us going with Ocean Beach. And the bad guy in that is sort of the rich man with a mansion on a hilltop. But then when we were um, Done with the pilot, we realized, you know, if he's our bad guy, we kind of caught him or or at least screwed him up a little too easily for him to be that threatening. I think Chris Cousins did a fabulous job, but he's not the the Lord Prince. He's not. uh, He's actually too nice a guy to play Darth Vader. And and you can kind of you can read that. So then when we came back to uh, to do the series, it was like, okay, how do we sort of make that sort of layer this so there's a guy behind that guy and then a guy behind that guy so we just we keep on making this feel deeper than we ever uh, thought but that was sort of born out of looking at the mistake of the pilot which is well we kind of got one over on him so he's not that tough a villain well i think that's interesting is christopher cousins both here and in breaking bad he plays a guy who's sort of in opposition and he's he's a bad guy in terriers he's done bad things obviously but I feel for him more often than not in Fuster Cluck when they grab him off the plane. I'm like, that poor guy was just trying to get out of town, and they totally screwed him. Yeah, he does a fabulous job. I mean, that's the thing, and it's it's hard to say that it was necessarily planned or it, we just started doing it and discovered that it was Hank's mode of operation, which was he does quite often the thing we want him to, maybe even – he he'll do the wrong thing for the right reasons or the right thing for the wrong reasons and even the, and at any point i think we understand and kind of want him to do it but it tends up 99% of the time it really screws everybody up and not because he wanted to i mean he really does a lot of harm to lindus not that lindus didn't have it coming to him nothing hank does at that moment is necessarily wrong but at the end of the story there's a lot of debris and he's at the end of i mean at the end of the season he's unbeknownst to the community, save the community. But boy, is there a lot of wreckage in his life as a result. Final character I want to talk about specifically is Steph, who is such a huge presence on the show. And it seems like she's baked right into the pilot. Is, was that was that planned? I did two drafts of the pilot. We did one just in script form, which was, I would say, 60% of what you saw, except the plot was a little different. It was how we got to the girl in trouble. And I don't think Mickey Gosney was a part of it. Uh, there was just it was just a different different story, and we sort of looked at it and said, let's throw out the A story and just do something. Let's try it again. So we did, and I can't remember if the sister was in that first draft, but I remember when we were talking about it, we always talked about the sister character and that she was living with Hank unbeknownst to him. So the seeds in the pilot were there intentionally. Him forgetting that he finished the milk is definitely, yeah, we knew the sister was, was drinking the milk. It wasn't just a senility story. Though that is the one of the fun things I found about TV is that you can do something in episode three, not really thinking about it, and then you're in a bind in episode 11, and you think, oh, you know that thing we did in episode three? 
my favorite specific example, sorry, and now I'm just running on, is on The Shield, which I, I, I helped out on one episode just to sort of see what TV was like because I, I just adored the, the Shield, and that's I, call, I called up Sean, cold called him, and that's how, how I got to know him. Anyway, in that season I worked on, it was the Forrest Whitaker season, and in some early episode he was wearing a, uh, a wedding ring, which the character was not married, but Forrest Whitaker had, had forgotten to take off his wedding ring. And so they were looking at the scene as it was cut, and they realized, geez, we have this discrepancy now. Do we just ignore it? And then they decided, well, what if we just get that character an ex-wife and occasionally he wears the ring because he's still caught up with his wife. And then that became a really delicious moment where Vic Mackey confronts Forrest Whitaker about having slept with his ex-wife, if you, if you know the show. It's one of those, it became a defining part of the character, his sort of messed up relationship with his ex-wife. Yeah, but that was all born out of a, of a fuck-up. So in the example of Terriers, the box with Mickey Gosney's belongings that Hank takes possession of was, at the time, purely a illustration of how sad Mickey's life had become, that everything was just, your whole life was in a box and how sort of tragic that was. And then when we came time at the finale, it was like, all right, what, uh, what's the, and we thought the, there's the box. Yeah. <laughs> what's in the box. <laughs> well, and also I was, when I was talking to Tim, uh, we talked about episode 11 and the reveal of Reynolds. And as I was watching this, I thought there were sort of little hints throughout that Reynolds was, I don't know, smarter than we thought he was. And then he told me, no, no, we came up with that as we were writing episode 11. Oh yeah. But again, I think that's the great thing of, of using Craig Susser played Reynolds is he's a presence, but you don't know him as an actor. I mean, Craig is, is uh, mostly a restaurateur. He has a very successful restaurant called Craig's in Hollywood, which is sort of the chastens of the moment. But he also acts, so and he's a friend of mine, so we put him in. But he's not somebody you recognize from like, oh, that's going to – like if we had cast – like an actor you recognized, you would probably gotten the sense of like, oh, there's something coming with that guy. And with Craig, we could kind of hide him in plain sight, even though at the time we didn't know we were doing that. So and this I, I'm hoping not to be pointing out a discrepancy here because I think it's something that, that is a character based thing. But when Steph shows up, I noticed that Katie seems to know about her. Katie seems to know what the rules are and that kind of thing. And Britt's just seems like he's never met her. And I'm curious, did, did Hank know Katie before he knew Britt? Or is it just that he talked to Katie about it, but not Britt? I just think that, yeah, Katie and Hank have a different relationship so that she would know more than Britt does. And it's, it's as, as simple as that, I think. Yeah, I wasn't sure if Katie had met Hank before she met Britt, but I started thinking about it and I'm like, I don't think that track. So it probably wasn't what the case was. No, 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 no. I think definitely that, I mean, it, it, that, that is a very much a Butch Sundance at a place relationship, but I think uh, as opposed to with Butch and Sundance at a place, I don't think there's any even hint of a menage at, <laughs> or, or, uh, or, or that there's anything going on between Hank and Katie other than a very sweet friendship. That's one thing I really liked about the Hank and Katie and Britt relationship is that Hank and Katie and the pilot have that episode where they're sort of washing dishes and talking about Britt. And at no point in the series do I get the feeling that Hank and Katie, there's even a twinge of sort of attraction between them. And yet they're so close. It is almost like a brother-sister relationship. I think you don't see a lot of that. No, I like that a lot. I think it's a testament to the actors, and also it's, I think, a testament to our trying to avoid false drama of, I would say, any time we even hint that one of our guys is going to betray the other one, we always tried to relieve that fairly soon by saying, no, 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 these aren't those guys. These are not guys who are going to try to hit on each other's girlfriends or sell the other one out. That's, I don't know, something I always felt strongly about our characters is that 
they weren't going to take that low road ever. How did the relationship between Donald Logue and Michael Raymond James affect your writing of the characters, if it did? I would say their rapport inspired us, meaning we were able to write more banter, know that they could be silly with each other and that they would carry it off. There's one of my favorite lines in the finale is also probably one of the stupidest lines I've ever written, which is when Britt says, there's an APB out on you. And Hank says, for a second, I thought you said there's a PB and J out on me. <laughs> and they start to just to laugh at the silliness of that in the, in the midst of this context of that they're on the lamb and things are as bad as they can be. And there's something about writing a line like that, which if your actors don't get along, <laughs> that, that line is going to like sit there like a shit. So it allowed us to be sort of silly in the writing in the way that I think you can be silly with a friend or nonsensical with a, with a friend and you guys sort of get each other. And because Mikey and Donald had that relationship, that allowed us to lean into that even more. Yeah, there's a line in, I think it's Fuster Cluck, where Britt comes in to talk to Hank and he says something like, you don't want to say about raccoons, right? They're not tidy. And it's like, the whole thing is delivery and he gets it. It's so great. Yeah, because it's not really, it's like a joke that he didn't have a plan for and they're... That's he's just going to say that because it gets him out of the saying anymore. I have some specific episode questions for you. So starting with episode one, I'm not 100 percent sure. I think I've got this, but who killed Tony and why didn't they take the cell phone? It was Lindis, right? Pretty sure. I think because he, he admits to it. I, I will say uh, not to compare myself with Chandler, but there's that story of after the big sleep or when they were adapting the big sleep. Faulkner and Lee Brackett asked Chandler who killed some character. And he said, I have absolutely no idea <laughs> on that one. I will say it's been a few years. So it's but I remember that I think Lindis cops to it in Fuster Cluck. More or less. He says you got lucky on that one. Yeah. And if it ain't Lindis, then maybe it's two of his the boys in black who get into the, the parking lot scuffle in the pilot working for Lindis. That's my best guess. Why does Hank hate Lindis so quickly? Is it just because he's rich? Is it a vibe he gets off of Lindis? I mean, I think he has a distaste for him quickly. I mean, I think Lindis makes the sort of slightly homophobic joke of I wouldn't take you two men, uh, the type of men to be walking a dog together. Right. And I think Lindis's confidence that he can sort of buy them. And then I think it just grows from that of having to watch Lindis have sex with his buddy's young daughter. And it just builds and builds and builds. But I think I, I wouldn't say it goes to hate until Gosney's dead. And then Hank is a Komodo dragon with that guy. And then later in the pilot, Hank asks Gustafson to sort of look into Lindis. And I feel like maybe Gustafson, I didn't know if he bought that Hank, that there was anything there, or if he thought that Hank was maybe being paranoid again. I would say that, I would say again, <laughs> Gustafson does not give him the benefit of the doubt. I think at that point in the relationship, it's, and, and, and I think that is Gustafson's arc over the course of the season is coming from a place of doubt to a place of not only belief, but also he really sticks, sticks his neck out on the line in the finale, basically giving a <laughs> taking the cuffs off of Hank and saying, you got 24 hours. I think for Gustafson to get there, he's got to start at a place of this is Hank seeing a windmill and thinking something else. All right. Jumping ahead to episode three. Mm -hmm. When Gretchen goes to talk to Hank about the credit card stuff, does she, in your mind, have an inkling as to that Hank might be messing with her? Or do you think she's just coming to Hank for, for help? I think she's coming to him for help. My gut says... You know, it may have occurred to her, but I don't think she's asking him to do it to sort of say, I know what you're up to. But in a way, it, this may be one of those things where saying less might benefit the show more because however an audience might read into that, 
might be better than whatever I was thinking. Also about episode three, Hank, when he's talking to Armand, there's a little bit of that instant distaste as well. And I wonder, Hank, sort of his his distaste for the rich doesn't really seem irrational given how he interacts with them all. They, it usually pays off. We were also doing the show at a moment, twenty. so we were making it in the spring of 2010. And in 2008, in the fall of 2008, the bottom had fallen out. And it wasn't so much, I don't think there was the sort of the the term, the 1% had not come up yet. That's right. That's more 2012, I think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry. It is 2012 with Romney and Occupy. Romney's 47%. Yeah. But Madoff had hit by that point. So there was this kind of growing distrust. Like uh, it was it was in the in the air. We were very conscious of wanting to do a show that was about that touched a little bit on economic class in in the U.S. and and that in a way that Brit and Hank were like economic warriors or something. I mean, it probably is only interesting to me. But right before Terriers, I I had written a draft of this movie Tower Heist, which is about the guys who work in a deluxe building being the only people to be able to take down a Madoff like criminal who's up in the penthouse. So it was very much the the poor getting economic justice. So I think that idea probably bled into terriers or vice versa, because actually I can't even remember. There was some break in between writing the pilot of terriers and doing the show that maybe that's when I had to work on Towerized. So it was on our mind. I think he has a, a an immediate distrust of the guy Maybe because he's rich, but I think Armand being an asshole, then whether he's rich or poor. (laughs) All right. And then I want to talk about episode five, where we meet sort of our first big bad in Ben Zeitland. Yeah. First of all, Ben Zeitland, I think, what a great character. And the sort of oily charm that he has, I think, is really interesting. And by the way, named before, is it Beast of the Southern Wild, which was directed by Ben Zeitland. It was (laughs) not an homage to him. I had the soundtrack to the 1978 Invasions of the Body Snatchers, which was done by Danny Zeitlin. And that's where the last name came from, just because I thought it was a really cool last name. And then we got that's one of those things where we kind of got lucky because Michael Gaston was available. And so we said, oh, grab him while we can. And then we started like rewriting the role to him because I was familiar with him as an actor. We've since become friends. But it was one of those things of like, oh, we can give this guy stuff to do because he can he can do it without twirling his mustache. He can sell this. Yeah, I think it's interesting because like Christopher Cousins and uh, Lindis, he is a likable guy. You can see this guy who, in a different circumstance, like, oh, it'd be a fun guy to pal around with. He's friendly and charming and funny. But at the same time, he's just ruthless. Mm-hmm. And that double side that I think that Gaston really brings to it, I think it was really, really interesting. But I, I wanted to know, when did Zeitlin and his and, and company get on to Hank and Britt? Was it when Mrs. Lindis told them, or has he been on them before that? He's been on them since Lindis. One of the fun things about writing a detective story from the detective's POV is that they never actually, in truth, like get the whole story. They might be able to sort of solve the crime, but that doesn't mean they get sort of the 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 God's version of what actually happened. And especially one of our things in Terriers was we wanted to make sure that we were doing detective stories where it wasn't so much the detective finding out the truth. It, we never really did a whodunit in which it was about gathering facts or figuring out who was lying. It was always about an active thing. Like we've got to get the ring back or get this person to there or get this person out of a problem as opposed to it was action versus knowledge. And what that also allows you to do keeping the POV is it leaves it up to the audience's imagination of as much as your character's imagination of, okay, when were they on to us? Because I think the, the first inkling that there's something 
a little heavy out there is when they're heisting Lindis's office and they see an, a black SUV, like maybe they're being watched. And so we wanted to sort of hint and all that. But as far as like when Zeitlin was still a first hip to them or who Lindis is talking to on his phone on the original sex tape is sort of like, I'd rather leave it up to people to fill in their own blanks because it's probably a lot more interesting than what I got to say, <laughs> what my theory is. And that's part of the fun. I think one of the things I like about the SUV when it shows up is it's it's like the man in black taunting them. Like, you don't know if it's actually someone, you know, if Burke's in that SUV or if there are a lot of black SUVs in, in Ocean Beach, I'm sure. There was just some guy and they were being paranoid. Yeah, I sort of like that. We don't need to necessarily pay that off or, or explain everything because certainly when you go through life, you rarely find out the truth of of. of anything you're involved in. <laughs> so I want to talk about Burke. Yeah. Because I think he's a great heavy. I love that character. And when, when we first meet him, he seems to have an instant dislike for Hank before Hank even sucker punches him. And I wonder if that's because Hank's digging into the case, if Hank's an unlicensed PI, he doesn't like his professionalism, if it's a reaction to Hank's dislike, or if it's just that Burke's kind of an unpleasant guy. <laughs> I think he's an unpleasant guy. I think I'm trying to remember all the, the characters that influenced that one. I know for some reason, do you remember the actor James B. Sicking? He was, he was on Hill Street Blues and then he shows up in a lot of Peter Himes movies, but there's just some, there's like an oily distrustful thing about him. That was kind of fantastic. He played a pretty good villain in a pretty B thriller called narrow margin with Gene Hackman, but he's just um, he's just a snake, and I think that's where uh, Burke came in. We also wanted because we knew that Zeitlin was going to be the kind of the thinking bad guy. This is true of Bond. I mean, look at most Bond villains, and they're they're not the guy who should be getting into a fight with Bond. Goldfinger isn't going to go mano a mano, but Oddjob is. So we needed sort of like that physical villain, whether it be Robert Shaw and from Rush with Love, is I guess is another example. But we wanted we wanted a, a physical threat to our guys, and that's what that's how Burke came around. I don't think we ever see Burke's like history reveal. Do you did you have any of that in mind? Was he a former cop or any of that kind of thing? We were keeping it as unknowable as possible because I think that guy is unknowable as possible. And when, so when he turns up dead in the outside of a trash bin, hopefully there's absolutely, absolutely no no fingerprint record or nobody knows who the hell that guy is because he's he's been a, a private operator for so long. All right. I think that's all the questions I have for you this time. Hopefully when we get to the, the end, we'll be able to do sort of an exit interview for Terrier's uh, second half. Love to. I, I really appreciate you talking to me. I really appreciate you creating this show, which obviously I love so much that I'm spending months of my life dedicated to putting this podcast together and, and hopefully people will enjoy it. Any other thoughts? before we head out for the day probably my last thought is before we went ahead with the title of terriers i probably should have listened more closely to the lyrics of gunfight epiphany and just taken a phrase from that or called the show gunfight epiphany but i think that that's probably my one regret as far as titling it but i want to thank you very much for putting together this podcast there's no greater compliment this show has received even from alan sevenwall than uh than you uh taking the time and the the energy and doing such a great job of having listened to the first episode it's really the highest compliment we've ever gotten so it's much appreciated thank you all right thank you very much Beach Cop Detectives is an independently run podcast co-produced by Randy Lander and Grant Davis from the TV Dudes and part of the Permanent Record Network. Music for this series includes the surf music tracks Happy and Whimsical by Paul Tayan. 
hear more of his work, go to soundcloud.com slash Artwork for the show is by Nate Bliss. You can find him at nateblis-art.tumblr.com. You can like us on Facebook at Beach Cop Detectives and on Twitter at Beach Cop Podcast. You can hear weekly TV commentary by Randy and Grant at the TVDudes.com. Thanks for listening.